All right, please open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. As you know, we finished the Sermon on the Mount, and so we are going to continue with Christ. What is he going to do? He's just preached the greatest sermon man's ears have ever heard, the greatest sermon ever preached, and what does he do next? We're going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 17 of Matthew chapter 8. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion said, uh, centurion, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go and let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought many to him who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word. He healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our disease. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, these miracles that Christ performed on this earth are inspiring and amaze us. Please feed us with your word this evening. Give us the spiritual nourishment we need. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. We have you to see three things this evening, just that we will focus on these three miracles, the leper, the centurion's servant, and Peter's mother-in-law and the others. Uh, recall that Christ first went into the wilderness and was tempted, and then when he got out of the wilderness, he began to preach the kingdom of heaven. He said, repent and believe the gospel. So he is gone up and he's taught the Sermon on the Mount, which was 
opening up kingdom attributes, the Beatitudes, kingdom law, what goes in the heart. He was saying the law is heart deep and it affects all of us. And then he ended with kingdom entry. He said, enter the kingdom by the narrow way. And so now he comes down and he begins to act in these ways. He begins to heal people. Matthew Henry says the people that heard him were astonished at his doctrine. And the effect was that when the people came down the mountain, great multitudes followed him, though he was so strict a lawgiver and so faithful a reprover. They diligently attended him and were loath to disperse and go from him. Note they to whom Christ has manifested himself cannot but desire more better acquaintance with him. They who know Christ should covet to know him more and more. And so it is often in our day, preachers, when they want people to find Christ appealing, they want to soften the hard edges. They want to leave parts out. And yet it is the unadulterated Christ that draws people to him. We do not want to cut any parts of Christ off. He was a strict lawgiver. Remember, he held the standard high. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, if you do this, if you think it in your heart, you are guilty. And yet the people still followed him. Why? Because he. He had the authority in the in the sermon. You heard him over and over say, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, he didn't quote from a rabbi. He said, I have the authority. I'm telling you this. And then he comes down and what does he do? He proves it by his actions. Who can heal a leper? Who can heal a lame person? Who can cause sick people to rise from the dead? Who can do all of these things? It is the same one who has the authority to teach of his own name. In verse 2, we see that a leper has come forward. William Barclay says that leprosy was the worst disease in that time. It was incurable. It was a death sentence when you got leprosy. Second Kings 5, 7 recounts of the, one of the kings of Israel getting a demand from one of his enemies. And the demand was that he needed to heal somebody who had leprosy. And here was his response. The king of Israel read the letter and he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends me to cure a man of his leprosy? It was impossible. He could not do it. They knew this was a death sentence. And so this man that is coming to Christ, this leper, was in a hopeless condition. There was no hope for him aside from Christ and his healing power. Beyond this, beyond the physical pain that he was in, beyond the physical condition, Rather, you know, leprosy would deaden the senses so you couldn't feel things and you'd get wounds and you'd get infections and limbs would start to fall off. So not necessarily the pain they would feel, but it was a condition physically, but it was also a a condition socially. When you contracted leprosy, you never touched your family again. You had to stay six feet away if you ever even saw them. You could not be within city limits. You had to live outside the city. It made that clear in Leviticus 13.46. In Leviticus 13.45, it talked about you had to yell, unclean, unclean, wherever you went so people would know. 
You think about yourself. When you when you feel ashamed, you want to hide. You don't want people to see. You don't want to make it known. And yet these people had to call out, unclean, unclean. They had to make it known wherever they went. You can imagine the social feeling that that would cause you to have. Beyond that, often in this time, people thought if you were sick, You had done something wrong. God was cursing you for this thing. So there was the stigma of having leprosy. You were this wicked person who deserved what you got. So you can imagine the situation that this leper is in. The shame that they must be feeling. The aloneness that they must have. Well, what is it? Well, the last thing. It's not just there was social isolation. Where would you go if you had sinned? Where would you have to go? You'd have to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice. Do you know where lepers were not allowed to the temple? They were unclean. So they were also cut off from this this temple where God's presence was in the Holy of Holies. They were cut off. What a heartbreaking situation this is. Now, he came and he said... uh, If you will, you can heal me. He did not question Christ's ability. He said, I know you can do this. The question is, do you want to do this? Christ, will you heal me? This is the faith that this leper had. He knew Christ was able to. He only asked, are you willing? Now, we see in verse 3. And imagine you're, you're there in the multitude, you're watching this. There's Christ, and there's this leper who has come up, and you know when he's approaching, all the multitude is backing away. They don't want a part of this leper, this, this dirty person. They want nothing to do with him. And he asks Christ, and what does Christ do? Not only does he just say, you're healed, I want to. He could have done that without touching him. He reaches out, and he touches the leper. There's no telling how long this man had leprosy before when the last time a healthy, clean person, a religious man, was willing to touch him and give him comfort and heal him. Do you see this picture of your Savior, dear one? There is no one more compassionate, more loving, more gracious than Christ. Oh, how we adore our Savior You can imagine there would be many holy men who would recoil and say, get away from me. I want nothing to do with you. Get back to where you're supposed to be, but not our Christ. He is a loving Savior. Not only is he loving, not only does he have that compassion, he can do the healing. He is God himself. Verse 3, immediately the leprosy was cleansed. Look at Christ's power. We have doctors that can do amazing things with medicine these days, but there are still illnesses that cannot be cured. And we we pray and we say, please do this. And yet for God himself, healing is nothing. He can do it instantaneously. Look at the great God that you have, Christ the Son. Verse 4, Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses has commanded for proof to them. Well, you might be thinking, well, why in the world is he saying don't tell people? And this is a recurring theme in the Gospels. Uh, Christ has a mission. Christ has to teach a lot of things. 
He is not, if things were to blow up right in that first month and they were going to crucify him for claiming to be God and he's healing people, and he's doing all this, if all that news gets out in one, he's not going to get to spend three years teaching everything he has to teach. He has a timeline. You remember when his mother tried to get him to do his first miracle. He said, it's not my time. He had a timeline. He was obeying his timeline. So he did not need this word to go out. But he does say, follow the law. Go to the uh, the Pharisees, to the priests, and have them check. That was part of the law to see if he really was clean. It was obeying the law. Christ is not, as he said, he is not dispersing with the law. He is fulfilling the law. We move from the, the leper to the centurion's servant. Who is a centurion? He is a Roman officer. He is in charge of the basic Roman unit. A hundred men. This is the fighting unit. Uh, the people who were promoted were the, the talented soldiers. And he certainly knew authority. You can imagine he had to keep discipline in his unit. He had to command them to do things. He had to coordinate missions. This man knew authority. And we see that what kind of person this centurion was. Uh, Luke 7, 7 gives us more detail. Pharisee, uh, uh, some religious teachers told Christ in that gospel uh, that he loves our nation. He loves the Jews and he is the one who built our synagogue. So he is, as we know from Christ saying, your faith is so strong. He is a believer. He's a convert and he loves the Jewish nation and he does things for the Jewish nation. And what is Christ's response? Well, one thing. We can consider people who are considered pacifists, who say we ought not to have any military. We ought not to go out and commit, do war. We ought not to do these things. And yet, what does Christ do here when he encounters this soldier? He does not tell him that he is a sinner because he is a soldier. He does not send him away and say, stop being a soldier. Christ does not have this issue with this soldier. Secondly, for application for today... In our modern world, you'll get this a lot in universities. There is critical studies. There is identity politics. It's trying to divide people based on whether they are an oppressor or an oppressed. Uh, some people call this, refer to this as cultural Marxism. Carol Swain gave a talk at the Institute for Faith and Culture at the Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, and she talks about this, this lens. She says, in old school Marxism, you used to divide people based on economics. The people who owned the factories and the workers. And it was this division. And you wanted to divide them and cause the, the people who were oppressed to rise up against these other people and create revolution. And Carol Swain says now we've moved from that to cultural revolution where you have to divide people into social status, into your race, into this and oppressor and oppressed class. You can imagine from the things you've heard on the news and all, if Christ were a critical studies major and a centurion came, what would his response be? Get away from me, you oppressor. You're a Gentile who's oppressing the, the Jews in this land. I will have nothing to do with you. Go, flee, run away from me. You're a wicked man, and yet Christ will have none of this division. He will have none of it. Christ will heal and work for anybody. His Christ's love is not drawn at the boundaries of race. Christ's love transgresses all boundaries. He is the infinitely loving God. 
We see his greatness yet again and his encounter with the centurion. Verse 8 tells us further about this centurion's faith. Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. My roof. So he is a humble man. I'll tell you this. A normal centurion would not consider himself beneath some Jewish carpenter who's now a teacher. That would not be the case. He would absolutely think he's worthy for this this person to be able to come and heal this person. And yet he is a believer. He knows that he is a sinner. He is under. He knows that Christ is the Messiah. He is not worthy. Christ is lifting this man up for his faith. Now, I say he knew all these things. You know, Christ's followers, his disciples were confused oftentimes too. And they'd, they'd see him perform a miracle and they'd say, who is this man? So it's not clear how much this centurion knew of all these things. Christ is just beginning his ministry. But Christ sees the faith that this centurion has. He is a humble man. Here's what Augustine has to say about this centurion. The centurion did not receive the Lord under his roof. He received him in his heart. The more humble a person is, the more receptive and full he becomes. Hills repel water, but valleys are filled up. And so it is that we, when we are humble, we need Christ. We need him. Those people who are proud and don't think they need him, they do not receive him. Verse 8, only say the word and my servant will be healed. He knows that Christ can do this. He knows it just like the leper knew it. Verse 10 says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. Can you imagine what it takes to marvel Christ, the Savior? Charles Spurgeon says this, the Gospels do not report that Jesus was amazed at the gigantic architecture of the temple, at the wonderful discipline of the Roman army, or at the profound knowledge of the rabbis. He was amazed only twice, according to the record, and on both occasions he was amazed concerning someone's faith, once at the absence of it and once at its presence. In the former case, Jesus was amazed at the unbelief of fellow Jewish hometown people, And here he is amazed at the centurion's faith. You do not have to have lots of money. You don't have to be important. You don't have to be a a leader in the world. You have faith. That is what God counts for. That is what God looks for. That is what he delights to see. Your faith in him. Jesus is telling the disciples that. Okay, so one Point You hear that and you think that's wonderful. But at another point you think, okay, well, the centurion did have great faith. And yet I kind of go through spells where I doubt. And I, and I sometimes am in situations where the world just seems to be upside down and my faith falters. So what if my faith isn't as strong as the centurion's faith? So that can kind of be a hard thing to look at, but... Uh, what does Christ say about even when you have little faith? In Matthew seventeen twenty, he said to them, because of your little faith. He's, they were saying, well, why couldn't we heal this person? He said, because of your little faith. But truly, I say to you, if you have the faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. 
Remember, the importance of faith is not the strength that you have. It's the object of the faith. It's who you're placing your trust in. And this Christ is the amazing one. Yes, we should have strong faith in him. We look at all that he's done throughout all history and everything he's been able to do. We ought to have strong faith in him. But the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 18, when it speaks of our assurance, says that our faith goes up and down. It does change sometimes. Section 3 says this infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be a partaker of it. In section 4, it says, True believers may have the assurance of their salvation in diverse ways shaken, diminished, or intermitted. Sometimes our faith is weakened. And yet God does not reject us at that point. If you're curious uh, what else it says, I encourage you when you go home tonight to open up to Westminster uh, chapter 18 and read some more read what are the remedies for it read how you change this assurance when it is weakened but the point here is christian if in your conception you have to muster this thing up for you to be acceptable to christ you have the wrong conception of faith faith is the simple resting and receiving what christ has done and who he is he is the strong one you are the weak one Now we turn to Peter's mother-in-law, verse 14 through 17. Once again, we see Christ's power on display. She has a fever. He touches her, and immediately she is healed. He is the infinitely powerful God. He can heal all things, all people. And, And you notice in this session, he's healing lots of people. Now, imagine you've had a long day. You've just preached the best sermon anyone's ever heard. And you can imagine how long that took. It took us a long time just to get through the sermon. He's then healed and healed and healed. And now he comes home and there's somebody else that's healed. If it were you or I, we might say, oh, we might have sighed and said not again. And people are bringing multitudes of people to be healed. But look at your Christ. He does not turn them away. He heals them. What a savior. Secondly, notice what was her response. He heals her, and what does she do? She gets up and serves him. I'd wonder, dear Christian, Christ has saved you. He has healed your spiritual condition. What is your response? Is it to relax and recline, or do you serve him even now? Do you try and serve your Savior and his church? Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. This is a paraphrase of Isaiah 53, 4. Notice that Christ has been long prophesied. This is the culmination, the fulfillment of it. You can feel how exciting this is that this man, as he is walking and doing these things, he is fulfilling prophecies that were spoken millennia before This is the anointed one. When we celebrate Christ and his birth, we're saying this one, he is coming. He is coming and he's going to do these amazing things. Oh, dear one, we love this Savior. We are not worthy of this Savior, but he is care. He cares. Look how he cares for all of these people. And so we ought to also, we ought to care for those who are hungry and needy and those who are sick and those who are. We are, our hearts ought to be the same way that Christ is. Now, as we move to closing this, there are several takeaways we need to have. First, 
Some of you might be thinking, okay, I see all these healings in Scripture, and yet I'm sick. I have not been healed. I prayed for it, and yet I have not been healed. What's going on? Does Christ not love me in the way he loved the centurion and his servant or the leper? Why won't he reach his hand out and touch me? Or my mother or my grandmother or whoever? Well, I'll quote to you first Romans eleven thirty three through 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Dear one, you are a mere mortal. If you think that you will understand the workings of the high omnipotent one who controls all things, you are mistaken. We will not know all the answers here and now, but we will rest in. Do you see the heart of your Savior? He does delight to heal people. He wants to save the world so much he's willing to die on the cross. This is the in the whose hands you are in. So when he says no to you, whether you understand it or not, you can rest assured he is doing what is best. Now, we do have some tidbits from Scripture all around. What are, what are the things that he does in light? Like, how does he make these decisions when he's going to heal and when he's not? Well, we know he does it for his glory. Remember, when he let someone pass away so that he could be raised from the dead, so that God's glory could be proclaimed. Do you think Lazarus begrudged God that? No. <laughs> now Lazarus' example is preached throughout eternity. He doesn't begrudge God from using him for his glory. He's a servant of God. Not only that, but we know that God seeks not just your physical good, but he seeks your spiritual good. How many times does Paul pray, please take this, this, this punishment from me, this, this pain from me, whatever this is. We don't know what it is, but take it from me. This is 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 9. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So it's possible that Christ wants you to rest in his grace and mercy and in their situation of turmoil to trust him, to rest in his embrace. It could be that uh, there are many more things that I could mention, and you can search the scriptures for these, but we must go on. The bottom line is we don't know in every example, in every situation, but you know your God. You know his character. You know who he is, and you can trust him. The second conclusion we can bring here is... Christ is bringing in the kingdom. Remember, he started the sermon before the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe. And so he's preached the gospel. And now he's doing this thing. He's reversing the curse. Why, why is there sickness in this world? 
Do you remember there wasn't sickness in this world until sin entered? And what did it bring? So all this pain and decay and misery and sickness, this shows us how hideous sin is. It shows us sin's character. We ought to recoil from sin at its grotesque nature. So Christ is reversing this curse. He is healing people's bodies. John Calvin says they experienced in their bodies the grace of Christ. But we must look at the design for it would be idle to confine our view to a transitory advantage as if the son of God were merely a physician of the body. What then have sight for the blind Now, why then uh, give sight to the blind in order to show that he is the light of the world? He restored life to the dead to prove that he is the resurrection and the life. These miracles that he's performing is is giving an undergirth to his words. We see here, finally, let me let me ask you this question. If you were able, let's say that God said, I'm going to let you heal 10 people. You get to heal 10 people on this planet. How would you make that decision? It would be a very heavy uh, decision, wouldn't it? You might heal immediately the people you care about who are sick in your vicinity, but who are you going to use the rest of the healings for? Would you pick the most prominent scientists who are working on these things to be discovered? Would you pick the, the leaders who could bring in world peace? Who would you heal? Okay, well, now let's look at Christ. He's come to earth. There's lots of people on the planet and he could heal lots of people. He could go to the movers and shakers and be working amongst them. And yet, who are the three people that he's healed? He's healed a leper. How were lepers looked at? They were scum. They were to be pushed away. They were in the outskirts. How were Romans looked at? Roman soldiers by the Jews. How were they looked at? They were hated. And then just somebody's mother at home sick. Who is Christ healing? If you are not a mover and a shaker, if you're not seen as important in this world, Christ does not turn away from you. It's not as if you are unimportant to him. Christ loves these people. He loves all mankind. He is not a respecter of persons. Oh, do you see the character of your God? How good he is. How desirable Christ is. The last note I will make to you. These people came to Christ and how'd they come? They came with money to pay for healing, right? They came with things saying, if you heal me, I'll do all these great things for your kingdom. They bartered with him for their healing. No, they had nothing. And they came to Christ with empty hands. And that's the position that we have with Christ. We have nothing to offer to God to make him think, now this person's worthy. He loves you because of his benevolence. Because he has decided to outpour his love on his elect. What a gracious God. We don't have the money to pay for it. If he required payment, we would all be lost. Martin Luther says this. These examples of miracles fight for faith against works. For as Christ helps him out of pure grace through faith without any works or merit of his own, he does so for every man and would have all to think thus and expect 
forgiveness and aid like that. Thomas Manton says God brings all sufficiency to the covenant. We bring nothing but all necessity. I'll close with a hymn just by quoting it. And we will use this as our final hymn as well. But listen to the words. And as you sing them, you can think how meaningful they are considering the text we've just read. It's come ye sinners poor and wretched. Come ye sinners poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. He is able, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. Come ye needy, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance. Every grace that brings us nigh. Without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam. You are a poor beggar, dear one. If you have not come to Christ for forgiveness for your sins, you must do so this evening. If you have come to Christ, you must cling to this Savior that you have that offers this love and compassion to you. What a Savior that we worship. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, what an image of Christ our Savior who comes bearing light and life and can reverse sickness and pain and misery. Oh, help us to love him more. Help our unbelief. Help us to be faithful to you, to, to do what Peter's mother-in-law did, that we are healed and now we desire to get up and serve you, to serve Christ. Oh, Heavenly Father, give us the grace to have peace when you decide not to heal, to trust your mercy, your loving kindness, and your strong providence, to rest in you in all things. We thank you for your character, your goodness, and we rest in it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. For our closing hymn, please stand and turn to him.